come around fast, eh? And uh, yes, this will be my last official sermon. Next week, I'm sure I'll have a few things to say um, as we have our, our last service together. Um, but uh, this morning, uh, I just want to continue to uh, unpack from the parable of the what is commonly known as the prodigal son, uh, probably more aptly uh, known as the prodigal of the older brother, uh, the prodigal, the parable of the older brother, or maybe the parable about a good father. Um, this is a, a parable that I have obsessed over for the last probably four years, and I've written about 40,000 words on this parable. I'm not going to talk about all those 40,000 words today. Um, we'll just get a little bit. Um, but I, I pray that, uh, yeah, you would hear my heart uh, in this, and I pray that my heart would reflect the heart of the Father in this. Um, last week I, I started by saying that I, I truly believe that the church uh, is the greatest apologetic for the resurrected Christ. The flourishing community of God uh, is the greatest apologetic for the fact that Jesus lives, he is alive. But I also 100% believe that the church is in need of reformation. And I kind of find myself in this liminal space between these two things. And I think... Probably a lot of us would maybe nod our heads in agreement and say, yeah, we, we agree. But I, I actually think that while a lot of us might say, yeah, we, we agree that there needs to be some, some reformation, we probably all have very different ideas about what that might look like, what that might be. I, I believe that we need to be reformed around the life of Jesus just the simple message of Jesus, that he is king and that we flourish when we bring our lives under his redeeming rule and reign. I think we do best as the church when we center ourselves on that and that alone. So let me read this parable. We read it last week, but I'm going to read it again. It's in Luke 15, and Jesus says this. Jesus continued, There was a man who had two sons. The younger one said to his father, Father, give me my share of the estate. So he divided his property between them. Not long after that, the younger son got together all he had and set off for a distant country and there squandered his wealth and wild living. After he'd spent everything, there, there was a severe famine in that whole country and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to a citizen of that country who sent him to, to, feed, uh, to, the, to his fields to feed pigs. He longed to fill his stomach with the pods that the pigs were eating, but no one gave him anything. When he came to his senses, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have food to spare? And here I am starving to death. I will set out and go back to my father and say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired servants. So he got up and went to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion for him. He ran to his son, threw his arms around him and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. 
But the father said to his servants, Quick, bring the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. Bring the fattened calf and kill it. Let's have a feast and celebrate. For, his, for the son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. So they began to celebrate. Meanwhile, the older son was in the field. When he came near the house, he heard music and dancing. So he called one of the servants and asked him what was going on. Your brother has come, he replied, and your father has killed the fattened calf because he has him back safe and sound. The older brother became angry and refused to go in, so his father went out and pleaded with him. But he answered his father, Look, all these years I have been slaving for you and never disobeyed your orders, yet you never gave me even a young goat so I could celebrate with my friends. But when the son of yours who has squandered your property with prostitutes come home, you kill the fattened calf for him. My son, the father said, you are always with me and everything I have is yours. But we had to celebrate and be glad because this brother of yours was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. So we see here that the younger brother left the house and was far from home. And the older brother stayed in the house but was still far from home. The father wants both of them home but both need to turn back one from a self-debasing disobedience, the other from a self-righteous obedience. See, both of the brothers in the story are lost. Both are just as lost as each other. But only one realizes it. See, rebellion is the conscious effort to disobey. The truly deceived one in this story is the older brother. To John Ortberg said, one of the hardest things in the world is to stop being the prodigal son without turning into the older brother. Rich Voloda notes that it's, deep, it's, it's completely possible for someone to be deeply committed to being a Christian without ever being deeply formed by Christ. We can be deeply committed to all of the peripheral things that we call Christian without ever being formed by the life of Christ. Until we get back to that being the center of what it means to be a follower of Jesus, we will always have a compromised witness to the world. See, last week we saw that Jesus was doing two things when he spoke about this parable. One, he was revealing the heart of the Father. And the other thing he was doing was exposing the heart of the Pharisees. So he tells this parable in response to the accusations from the Pharisees that, that this man associates and eats with sinners. He responds by telling three stories. I love how Jesus never really responds to accusations. He just starts to say stuff that exposes people. He tells three stories, the one of the lost sheep, the lost coin, and then the lost son. But it's only in the last story that he puts the Pharisees right into the center of the story and exposes their hearts and leaves them with the cliffhanger. Will the older brother actually come home? I want to take a moment to talk a little bit about the environment of the older brother. See, the environment of the older brother is, is often an undercurrent of character traits and facades. The, the older brother's identity had been totally built on how he wasn't like his younger brother. But when the father restores the younger brother, everything he had been working towards, everything he had been striving for, actually comes crashing down around him. His whole identity comes crashing down 
when the father restores the younger brother. See, if only the older brother knew that everything was already his. Graham Cook puts it like this, something was finished before you even started. See, the outrageous generosity and the grace of this good father exposed the heart of the older brother, just like Mary's outrageous generosity when she anointed Jesus' feet with the expensive perfume exposed the heart of Judas. See, when we are confronted with the outrageous nature and character of God as goodness and as grace and as beauty, the byproduct is it exposes what is not of him. See, it's not until this older brother is confronted with this that his true colors come out, his anger flares up, he is critical, cynical, and judgmental. He is making all sorts of attempts to show why he is, in fact, the better son. Now, let's be honest for a moment. This actually sounds perfectly natural, doesn't it? You know, how often do we feel like we need to justify ourselves, make sure others know how much we have done and how much others haven't done? This is perfectly natural to our old nature because our old nature is rooted in sin, but our new nature is rooted in the son. See, a son would only have cared about what was in the heart of the father, and Jesus shows us this in his incredible display of his humanness in the Garden of Gethsemane as he sweats drops of blood at the thought of what is about to happen to him, yet he says, he says Father, not my will be done, but yours. And then he looks at us and he says, For the joy set before me, I will endure the cross. There seems to be some sort of parallel here to Matthew 7, uh, 23, where there's the bold claims of the self-righteousness, of, of, the, of the self-righteous, but, but God responds, away from me, I never knew you. See, the truth is, true sons celebrate with the father. But actually, in this culture of the day, the older brother was bringing shame upon the father by not only not attending the celebration, but also by not participating in preparing the party. Uh, you might say, Michael, how would he know that the party's even been thrown? He's out in the field. He's doing the work. He didn't even know that the youngest son had come home. And that, that is exactly my point. The older brother was busy doing the work of the house, but was disconnected from the heart of the house. It, it makes me wonder sometimes how much of the work that the older brother was busy doing was even in the heart of the father in the first place. See, I've discovered that the gospel was life and freedom to the younger brother, and it's offensive to the older brother. It offends every fiber of our self-righteousness. It opposes our pride, and it gives grace to the humble. So let's take a moment to look at some of the environments that I think we see in uh, this story with the older brother. Some of them I'm just going to flick through because I, I don't have time to go through all of them and some of them we'll spend a little bit of time on. But the, the first one I, I want to pick up on is, is cynicism. Cynicism is actually just fear with cool sunglasses on. See, at the root of cynicism is a lack of love, which is why the orphan-hearted older brother can easily and quickly create an environment of cynicism. The goal of the cynic is to create an environment where they are never to blame for relational breakdown or failures. 
The cynic often feels lonely, disenfranchised, and unheard. And unfortunately, this environment is of their own making. They have distanced themselves often from family, friends, and community. Paul Maxwell notes that the cynic places the highest premium on their own analysis of the world. It is a dull, stubborn fixation on something or someone. It is not a fit or fury, nor is it brash. It is slight and subtle, rolled eyes, raised eyebrows, curled lips, and beneath it all is a low-lit anxiety burning deep in the chest. The presumption of cynicism is not that it condescends from up there, but that it disapproves from nowhere. It scorns from a safe and comfortable nothingness, which is so empty and contentless that it cannot be retaliated against. Hannah Brooks Olson says this, Cynicism protects you from the fear that is innate to hope. The fear that you, you might not get what you'd hoped. The fear of being disappointed. Cynicism deflects both joy and disappointment equally and ensures that you are actively not chasing either. It lets in nothing. It lets out nothing. It is absolute and it is not permissive. You see, cynicism, cynicism actively works against hope. Cynicism is the sickness of the heart from deferred hope that we read about in Proverbs 13. Cynicism never finds its home in a healthy heart, and the antidote is curiosity and vulnerability. It's opening our hearts to others, making a choice to believe the best in people. It's becoming curious about the things of God. You know, Proverbs 25 said that it is the glory of God to conceal a matter, and to search out a matter is the glory of kings. In other words, God is not hiding the kingdom from you, it's just hidden for you. See, sure, curiosity might have killed the cat, but it's also going to kill that cynicism. See, when we set aside time to search his heart, our hearts become enraptured with his heart. We become obsessed with his concerns. Hope begins to rise again as we look at our lives and the potential of our lives through, through the eyes of a father who has the best in mind for us who has promised to never leave us nor forsake us, who said it is his good pleasure to give us the kingdom. And we are no longer the older brother disappointed about what could have been. And we start to see that our significance is never in what we do or what we know, but is always in who we reveal. So Tozer said this, he said, we might be wise to follow the inside of the enraptured heart rather than the more cautious reasoning of the theological mind. The next environment that the older brother creates is suspicion. See, suspicion is the counterfeit of discernment, and it walks hand in hand with cynicism. The suspicious cannot build anything of value. They are too busy being suspicious of everything and everyone else. Consumed with what's wrong with everything and everyone else, they are often their own loved ones are robbed of valuable time and investment. This is one of Satan's first tactics, suspicion. You see it in the garden. Did God really say? We should be suspicious about God, about people, about those around us. So when our faith is not secure in our identity in Christ, we in turn carry the seeds of suspicion and doubt into our relationships with others. 
The next environment that I've observed, noted, is loyalty. You might go, what do you mean? Isn't loyalty a good thing? Yeah, loyalty is a good thing, until it's not. See, this one may take you by surprise, but loyalty can be detrimental to the receiving of truth. See, we can become so loyal to a system, a structure, an ideology or belief system that even though that very belief system could be enslaving us, we feel loyal to it and in many ways have created our identity around this belief system. So if the belief system is found to be not true, we have a serious identity crisis on our hands. And this is why we are left with the cliffhanger in the story of the older brother. Will he decide to come home and join the celebration? To do so would be to deny all that he has worked hard for and embrace the truth that all that is in the father's house has always been his. See, is our faith so fragile that to admit we have been wrong in one, e one area may pull a string that undoes the rest of our faith? Is our faith really a house of cards? See, I think that our faith is not so much a set of belief systems, but rather a loving way of life, demonstrated by obedient loyalty to Jesus. See, Jesus said he is the way, the truth, and the life. So, so this gospel that we believe, this gospel that we follow, this gospel that we love is, is not Google Maps. It is not giving us a certain set of directions to get to heaven one day when we die. The gospel is Jesus, who is the way, who is the life, who is the truth. So, so to live in the way, to live in life union with Jesus so that, so that whatever is true of him has now become true of you. Wherever he is, you are. Wherever you are, he is. This is what it means to live as Jesus is the way. See, knowing Jesus as the way has more to do with how we travel than the destination. See, as we follow Jesus in, our, in, our, in this redemptive way of life, we are demonstrating to the world around us a different and more profound way to live, think, and act in our world. A, a redemptive and self-giving way instead of our own selfish and self-centered way of living. See, the truth is not just a set of doctrinal statements that we need to tick the boxes for. I, I think these are important. But, but the truth is a person. His name is Jesus. And if truth is not redemptive in its outworking, it's possible we have just given our allegiance to an ideology instead of to the truth. Because Jesus is always redemptive. So if the truth that you believe is the truth of who Jesus is, the person, then it will be redemptive in every way. See, we live in an ever-increasing divided world. Have you noticed that? The political divide is growing wider and wider and wider. And, and as, as the church, we have to navigate this. But my concern is that we are becoming more and more conformed to the patterns of the world. If the church is getting divided just as much as the political world is getting divided, it tells me we have given our allegiance to political ideologies and not to the person of Jesus. 
Why? Because we've been conformed to the patterns of the world, and the pattern of the world is division. So, so we are living in the midst of a culture war, and as followers of Jesus, we are called to rise above the culture war. Uh, we are seeing, uh, and, and I think we are, we are seeing more and more loyalty to political and religious ideologies. Fundamentalists versus progressives, conservatives versus liberals, left versus right. The war rages on each side, and each side demands you must pick a side. And if you don't pick my side, then you must be on the other side. And if you're on the other side, you are the enemy. See, this results in an unrelenting loyalty and allegiance to an ideology, even when these ideologies cut across the life, way, and truth of Jesus. See, this type of loyalty means we often feel we can never ask questions of our side. To do so would be to betray our loyalty to our ideology. But I also think if we look a little bit further, there is a deeper fear controlling our loyalty, a fear of being out of control ourselves, a fear that to question one thing is to question everything, a fear that to question a political or religious ideology is questioning our very faith. And this is a common fear when our faith is in ideology and not in the person of Jesus. See, certainty is the trademark of this very fear, a very narrow in, out, us versus them, right, wrong, certain way of viewing the world. See, arguing about which political party is best is like arguing about which seat is the best seat on the Titanic. See, Jesus said, beware of the yeast of the Pharisees and beware of the yeast of Herod. Beware of the religious spirit and beware of the political spirit. So whenever the church gets in bed with politics, we always have a compromised witness. So the Pharisees always tried to pigeonhole Jesus. They tried to catch him out. But Jesus always offered a third way, the way of the kingdom. And when we consider the types of people that Jesus called to follow him, we see that he called people from both sides of the political aisle of the day, and he called them to give up their allegiances to those to give allegiance to him and his kingdom. So we see Jesus called both the zealot and the tax collector to give up their allegiances. And to give full allegiance to him, to leave it all behind and follow him. To not trust in the world and the ways of the world, but to trust in this new kingdom. So in modern day terms, like a zealot would be like a religious nationalist. And a tax collector would be like a compromising with the enemy liberal. Two polar opposites. Jesus calls them both to give up their allegiances and follow him. See, when we have given our full allegiance to Jesus and his way, then we are no longer aligned to a political or religious ideology or system. This new and living way, the beautiful kingdom of heaven, will never fit under or in any of these systems of the world. So let's not try to make it fit. To try and make it fit would be to compromise the witness of the kingdom. So I saw the evidence of this type of loyalty in the church that I grew up in. Until I was 10, I was in a church which uh, can only be really described as a cult. And there was this fear-based loyalty to the system and the belief systems. 
people would give up relationships with children, with family, all in fear that if they didn't hold to the belief system, loyal to the belief system, then their destination was hell, or they were going to be other. This is not the way of Jesus. G.K. Chesterton said, let your religion be less of a theory and more of a love affair. So I often wonder how many churchgoers attend out of loyalty to a belief system rather than a genuine love for Jesus and his church. So Jesus never came to start a belief system or a religion. He came to open an invitation to a relationship, to deep friendship with God. One of the other environments we see is criticism. These studies have shown that people tend to react more strongly to hypocrisy when it includes criticism or negative judgment. And so while Jesus' biggest beef with the Pharisees was their hypocrisy, uh, Peter points out in 1 Peter 2 that this type of hypocrisy is a sign of immaturity and actually encourages believers to grow up, move on from it. He says, so abandon every form of evil deceit, hypocrisy, feelings of jealousy and slander. In the same way that nursing infants cry for milk, you must intensely crave the pure spiritual milk of God's word. For this milk will cause you to grow into maturity, fully nourished for a strong life. So the Greek word hypocrisis means the behavior of a a hypocrite, and it can be translated as a hypercritical attitude or, or the pulling things apart for judgmental analysis. And you you can see how this ties to the environment of a cynic because the cynic puts all of their value on their analysis of the world around them. So essentially, uh, in the Aramaic, it can be translated as wearing a face mask. So essentially, it's living two-faced with one standard for yourself and another standard for everyone else. See, Tozer once pointed out that a Pharisee is someone who is hard on others but easy on themselves. But a truly spiritual person is easy on others but hard on themselves. So Jesus continually addresses critics and hypocrites. They were trying to point out the faults in others and trying to hide their own faults. And at one point, I think with all of the humor that Jesus probably had, he, he points out to the, to the people, you know, you, you look at, at the speck in your brother's eye and you've got this massive plank sticking out of your own eye. Like, I think he was probably quite humorous at that point. But, but what does that create? It creates this artificial significance in us that if I can point out what's wrong with everyone else, then I will feel significant. But unfortunately, it's shallow and powerless and does nothing to advance the kingdom or bear witness to who Jesus is. Other environments that we see that we don't have time to, uh, to look at this morning is pride, false humility, safety, which is a really interesting one, judgment, and control. Greg Boyd in his book, Repenting from Religion, said this, the church is called to mirror the nature and character of this good father throughout the earth. Our loving oneness is to mirror the loving oneness of the Trinity. As we actually participate in the loving oneness of God, 
as you are in me and I am in you, may they also be in us. As we participate in God's loving oneness, we mirror and hopefully multiply this loving oneness among ourselves. And as we mirror this loving oneness, the world sees and believes that Jesus Christ is sent from the Father. Because as he is, so also are we in this world. Ah, man. This kind of church sounds attractive, doesn't it? Like almost otherworldly. It almost sounds heavenly. This church doesn't sound common. It almost sounds uncommon. This church doesn't sound natural. It almost sounds supernatural. What if we truly trusted that the ways of Jesus fully produce the fruit of Jesus? What if we trusted that the lifestyle of Jesus fully produced the life of Jesus? I think our Sunday gatherings would be the greatest practical and tangible expression of the Father's house. As heaven meets earth through affection expressed in our love for God and others as we honour Uh, His presence amongst us and the presence of each other. Imagine honoring the presence of each other in the room, what they carry, the Jesus in them. As we gather through the wine of his spirit poured out through celebration and joy, what a witness to the world. Greg Boyd continues in his book that the central mark of a maturing Christian and of a maturing congregation is that they increasingly love others as Christ loves them. To a large degree, we have preached our own version of of the knowledge of good and evil as though it were the message of salvation. We need to confess that we have sinned in the gravest fashion by frequently loving our version of truth and ethics more than people and even God himself. For one cannot genuinely love God while refusing to love one's neighbor. So this word repent is an interesting word. The most common meaning of repent means to turn or return. And in the context of the parable of the good father, we see that the youngest son chooses to return. He returns to the father. He returns home. And when we, when we understand this, we can start to understand that for the younger son, his sin wasn't actually the partying. It wasn't the squandering of the wealth. It wasn't the sleeping with the prostitutes. His sin was actually leaving the father's house in the first place. It was the turning from relationship and choosing to take ownership and control of his own life rather than living from the freedom, love, and abundance of the Father's house. However, he chooses to return and come home. But the older brother is so lost in his self-righteousness that he is totally ignorant of his own need for repentance. In his eyes, he has earned his right to one day in the future own the family home. His picture of this whole scenario is about a future inheritance. And he has been working so hard to earn his inheritance, which if you read at the start of the story, was actually given to him also. But unfortunately, the older brother has been deceived into thinking his religious effort is earning him some sort of future hope. But the father says, son, you are always with me. All that is mine is yours. 
In fact, it was all given to you at the start. I think it's important for us to stop and consider our Christian journey so far and how much of it has been based on a performance for identity, a management of behavior and and a serving for the Lord mindset rather than an identity based on who you are as a son and a daughter, on managing our beliefs and sons who are working with the Father. How much of our Christian faith has been focused on a behavior towards a future hope rather than the reality of the kingdom of heaven here and now? See, sometimes our our perception, our understanding of religion can be like a carrot on a stick, continually manipulating and enticing us to behave towards a future hope, the hope of heaven when we die. However, when Jesus established the kingdom on earth, it was like he gave us the carrot and said, eat and be filled now. And this carrot comes with a new heart, the infilling of his spirit, and the internal transformation that leads us to passionately bear witness to the kingdom. We've got a little diagram that we're going to have a quick look at uh, as we close. Um, this is from um, one of Peter McHugh's books. I just think it's really helpful. Uh, on the left, I've missed out the title accidentally, but it, on the left is, um, what must I do to go to heaven when I die? That perception. And on the right is, what must I do to release heaven on earth now? And so you can have a little look at that, but there's such a, a vast difference between the two and the perspective. And this parable highlights these two different perspectives. See, we're called to live on the right side. I can probably share that somewhere, or Sarah can. Anyway, take a photo of it or something. So as we bring this to a close, I, I, I a, little, a few chapters before, um, Jesus uh, has this en- encounter with the Pharisees where he exposes them. Uh, in Luke 12, um, Jesus is, is he's talking about the kingdom. He's always talking about the kingdom, but um, he's talking about the kingdom to his disciples. And in, in this chapter, he talks about the birds of the air being taken care of. And, and how much more would the Father want to take care of us if he's taking care of the birds of the air? And And he says all this and and finishes with this powerful statement about not being anxious, for it's the Father's good pleasure to give us the kingdom. But before he talked about all that, he he gave a warning to the disciples. And, And his warning was this, be continually on your guard. What he doesn't say is be be continually on your guard for the big bad boogie world. That's not what he says. But have you ever noticed that what, what's going on in the world that, that we know we're, we're called out of is, is kind of obvious, right? Like it's obvious. Jesus doesn't warn about that. That's clear. The, the youngest son knew that he was rebelling. That was obvious. It was a conscious effort to disobey and walk away from the father. The deceived one was the older brother. So, so it makes sense that Jesus, previous to this, is warning his disciples, listen, 
Be continually on your guard against the leaven of the Pharisees. The, the Amplified puts it like this, the leaven of the Pharisees. That is their pervasive corrupting influence in teaching, which is hypocrisy that produces self-righteousness. Jesus doesn't warn them against the world. That's obvious. He said the deception will come from within. So we know that Jesus is, is addressing a very real and relevant issue of their day, but, but you see the same issue is addressed by Paul all through his letters to the New Testament churches, and we see the same issue over and over again in our, in our 21st century churches. Why, why is that? Because self-righteousness is at the very core of our old nature. It wars against love. It wars against trust and believing on Jesus. It wars against the finished work of the cross. And it continues to make demands of us. And it is the leaven of the Pharisees. The leaven that Paul warns about again and again and says it's destructive and you need to get rid of every part of it. So Jesus said, do not be afraid and anxious, little flock. For it is your Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. See, Alan Hirsch said that repentance is the price required for any new learning in any domain. It's just that outside the church it's called unlearning, whereas inside the church it's called repentance. No one can learn who is not first prepared to unlearn. Likewise, no one can grow in God unless they are willing to repent. So repentance is, is about asking for forgiveness for the original thinking behind our behavior, not the actions themselves. They are only the fruit of our belief system. So repentance is coming out of agreement with self-righteousness and into agreement with God and the finished work of the cross. It, it's basically saying, Jesus, I'm stuffed without you. I cannot do this in my own effort. I surrender and I relinquish control of my life and all of my fear about what might happen, all of my fear even about what's going on in the world. I'm sorry for thinking I could ever do this. I, I repent for trusting in the systems of the world in the hope that political parties might bring about the kingdom. I think if we, if we think that repentance is just something that the younger brother needs to do to be able to come home again, we are deceived. Repentance is the normal lifestyle of someone who's living in life union with Jesus. It is the renewing of the mind. It's a daily thing. So this is not easy, eh? <laughs> Like, I just want to point that out. This is not easy. For some of us, this is years and years of living a certain way, being told a certain thing and thinking that we need to, you know, it's been passed on from generation to generation. And I believe that this is what Jesus was describing when he, after his encounter with the rich young ruler who had obeyed all of the rules, but Jesus said it's harder for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven than for a camel to pass through the eye of a needle. See, this rich man is a picture of self-righteousness. He has approached Jesus asking how to inherit the kingdom of God. How do I get eternal life is what he's asking. And think about it. This rich young ruler has everything. And, and now he's kind of just looking for the cherry on top. You know, how do I have life eternal? And Jesus responds that he should follow the commandments to inherit the kingdom of God. It sounds simple enough. 
But unfortunately, no one can keep the commandments. Jesus, what's he doing? He's testing this man's heart. So the rich man responds by basically saying, I've obeyed all of the rules since I was a kid. And Jesus responds by cutting straight to the heart of the issue, which is trust. This man's trust is in his own effort and the kingdom that he has built. Rich Veloda makes this observation about this little interaction. He says, the rich young ruler's problem was that he had obeyed commandments 5 through 10 and thought that was sufficient for his life with God. But when Jesus tells him to sell his possessions and follow him, which is the application of the very first commandment, he went away sad. It's amazing how good morals can blind us to hidden idols. See, holiness is not just about morality. Someone can have good morals when it comes to things of sexuality and the things of the world, but still be totally disconnected from the heart of the Father. See, when we often see that holiness is what we abstain from, but really holiness is actually about what we give ourselves to. When we give ourselves to the nature of the kingdom, things like mercy and love and hospitality. You see, we we don't build the kingdom, we announce it, we seek it, we receive it, and we bear witness to it. God builds it. So as sons and daughters, our, our, our mission, what we have been called to, our vocation as the flourishing community of God is not to just abstain from things and then make some sort of like announcement that we are better than everyone else and the world needs to repent. No, no we are actually supposed to just be a witness to this different way of living. We are are called to reveal the heart of the Father. Sons and daughters always reveal the heart of the Father. I've got two sons, both of them, and I don't know if this is the same for every other father, but I've observed, like, they are obsessed with whatever I like. Israel is obsessed with basketball. I love basketball. He's obsessed with it. Whatever I'm into, they love Ezekiel just loves tools. He's always got a screwdriver in his hand around home, sticking it into everything. (laughs) But if you want to know what I'm into, spend some time with my sons. By the end of the day, you'll know what I'm into. They'll show you. Sons always reveal the heart of the father. So if someone spends a day with you, what you talk about, what you obsess about, what concerns you, what fears you have, will reveal the Father that you follow. So the greatest passion of a son is to reveal their Father. I mean, we see it with Jesus, don't we? tell you the truth, the son can do nothing by himself. He does only what he sees the father doing. Whatever the father does, the son also does. For the father loves the son and shows him everything he is doing. In fact, the father will show him how to do even greater works in healing this man. Then you will be truly astonished. That's what John said about Jesus. That whole thing? Oh, that's what John said about Jesus. Yeah, John, John 5. 
See, the life and ministry of Jesus should not be a disconnected story for us to observe or occasionally read about. Jesus demonstrated what it means to be fully human, filled and empowered by the, and led by the Holy Spirit passionately about the Father's business. His life wasn't just about proving that he was God, but also proving that he was restoring our humanity again. His life is not just an example for us to strive after, but he not only showed us the way, but then made a way for his life to become ours. Through his death and resurrection, his life has now become our life, and our old life is now gone. You see, we have been co-crucified, co-buried, co-resurrected, and now co-heirs who have been co-missioned to continue the ministry of reconciliation. The Father makes his appeal through you. And our lives embody the gospel. And we demonstrate the heartbeat of the Father, his cry for humanity, his cry to see his sons and daughters come home. I often wonder how much of our Christianity actually reveals the heartbeat of the Father. So this kingdom Jesus came to establish, this kingdom we are a part of, is not of this world. And our main job as kingdom people was to literally mimic, imitate him in all things. Music team, you can come back. I love this quote by G.K. Chesterton. He said, We have sinned and grown old and cynical, but our father is younger than we. He has the eternal curiosity of infancy. A while ago, I took my kids to a movie, um, and the movie was called Smallfoot. Has anyone seen Smallfoot? No, it's a good movie. Take your kids to it. If you don't have kids, pretend you do. But actually, you can just rent it now. Um, as, as I was um, watching this movie and saw the plot start to unfold, I, I was thinking, oh, this is the gospel. <laughs> So in this movie, the Bigfoot community, which is your, you know, the abominable snowman, you know, Yetis, um, the the Bigfoot community had had retreated onto the top of a mountain to protect them smell, themselves from the smallfoot, which are the humans, uh, and they needed to protect themselves because the the humans at one point had hunted them down and done horrible things to them. And they created a world to protect themselves. But the world that they had created at the top of this mountain had actually enslaved them. They were ruled by all of the laws of the community, which they called the truth stones, which were actually just lies formulated to create this world that everyone had to obey and not question. And one of these lies was that the small foot doesn't actually exist, that it's all just a myth. There is no such thing as the small foot. 
until one day the main character, Migo, stumbles across a smallfoot who has crashed his plane on the top of the mountain and now Migo's whole world is falling down around him. If one true stone is not true, then maybe all of them are lies. One of the truths that the community believe is that the, the light snail, which is the sun, it does not rise until the gong ringer catapults himself across the town in a big slingshot. He gets himself in a slingshot, puts a helmet on his head, flies across the, the town and hits a gong. And when he hits the gong, the light snail comes up, the sun comes up. Uh, the, so this guy who does this is Dorgle, which is Migo's dad. Now, one particular day after Migo is actually banished from the community because he's asking some questions now, uh, and you know, he's challenging some of the truth stones, uh, Dorgal, uh, Migo's dad, is left to set up the complex gong ringer all by himself because normal, normally his son helps him set it up and puts him in the catapult and fires him off. And he's trying to do it all by himself, and he ends up missing the gong completely. And he's sitting there, and the sun rises. <laughs> so as he sits there he says this he says but if I'm not the gong ringer who am I see Dorgal's whole identity has come crashing down at the end of the movie the truth is revealed and reconciliation is made between the small feet and the big feet communities and they discover that the truth was actually better than they realised. See in this story of the older brother, the older brother has been met with the same identity crisis. Everything he has used to identify himself has come crashing down in one beautiful, redemptive act of his father. And he's left asking the question, if all that I have trusted and created for myself is not what my father was even looking for, then who am I? And the father invites him home again and just like the younger brother who has repented from a self-debasing disobedience, the father waits for the older brother to repent of his self-righteous obedience. See, we are all in this story. Some of us might identify with the younger brother. Some of us might identify with the older brother. To be honest, there's probably different areas of my life where I identify with both. The point of this parable is not to other one another and try and point out, decide who's the older brother, who's the younger brother. I've asked lots and lots of people over the last few years, if you were to pick one, you know, who would you be in the story? I've had lots of responses. Some people say, well, I'm probably a little bit like the younger brother at the moment. And some people say, no, I'm, I'm the older brother. I feel like I've got to do everything to get God's approval. If I only had one person 
ever respond with the answer I was looking for. Only one person has ever said to me, well, I really hope that I'm the father. That was my own dad. <laughs> he said that. Yeah. See, the point of the story is we're, we've been formed not into the younger brother and not into the older brother, not to either of those sons, but we've been formed into the son who's telling the story. That's all that matters. Everything else is peripheral to that. When we get that central, we'll be a witness to the kingdom. So my prayer, my heart is as we as we move on, on to new things, my heart and my prayer is that Awaken would always keep Jesus at the center. Everything else is peripheral. In fact, I would like to suggest that everything else will only give us a compromised witness. If we want to be a witness to the kingdom, let's keep Jesus center. Repent regularly. Repent regularly of our self-righteousness, of our rebellion. <laughs> Stay humble. Keep Jesus center. Yeah. Let me pray. Uh, Father, we just thank you for who you are. We thank you that you are good, eternally good. Father, we pray for the moments and the areas of our lives where we misrepresent you, we misunderstand you, where we don't see you clearly, where we think that we need to perform to achieve your acceptance and your love. We thank you, Holy Spirit, that you are with us, that you lead us into truth. We thank you, Jesus, that you are truth. We thank you for our union with you, Jesus. We thank you that we cannot wrap our heads around it, because if we could wrap our heads around it, we'd get arrogant about it. thank you that you did it that way so that it could only be you. It could only be you. There's no way we can work our way into the kingdom, perform our way into the kingdom. There's no way. Thank you, Father. You said, I'll give it to you. Here it is. Now be a witness. I thank you for what you're doing in and through your church. I thank you that your church is the greatest witness that you are alive, Jesus. Our love for one another. I thank you that you are filling your church with love. 
so that we can bear witness. Father, we repent of the, the ways that we have complicated this. We repent of the times that we have compared with one another and criticized one another and looked down on each other. We thank you for your spirit that is renewing our minds, renewing our hearts. We thank you that the best is yet to come for Upper Hut. The best is yet to come for Awaken. We thank you that you have good things in store because you are not only with Awaken, but you are for Awaken. You are with the people that you love in this community. You are for the people that you love in this community. Yeah, we thank you for what you're doing, Jesus. Amen.